Gather round, circle up, fill the cup, spill the tea Just believe, just believe the diamond dogs are here And that means that you're not alone We get one shot at this life And heaven knows, heaven knows that we try, that we try The diamond dogs are here Everybody, welcome back to episode three of season two of the Diamond Dogs podcast. I am one of your hosts, Jason Barnaby, here with my wonderful co-host, Beth Rashley. Yay. <laughs> and we are here to talk about episode three. Beth is going to kick us off with a recap. Yeah, I love the title of this episode, Do the Rightest Thing. Yes, it's good stuff. <laughs> I like definitely that. a theme for this episode. Yes. So where we left off last time is Jamie has rejoined the Richmond Greyhounds. So we really see this episode kicking off with just a lot going on with the team dynamics. Yeah, there's some tension. Nobody's real thrilled to have Jamie back um, on yep. the team. And there's some dynamics that happen there. Um, also, we see Rebecca's teenage goddaughter, Nora, come to visit while her mom, Sassy, is out of town. It's pretty awesome. And yeah, really cute scenes. And, and Rebecca is spending time trying to entertain her and all these things. And Nora ends up um, being really interested in the team and wants to spend time with Rebecca at work. So there's some great it scenes. It turns out she's there. pretty smart. She is. I'm telling you what, that Nora is going to take over the world one day. Yeah. Um, the other thing that's big in this episode is there's some um, sponsorships and some photo shoots that are happening with a sponsor, Dubai Air. And Sam um, finds out from his father that there's some, you know, issues with pollution yep. and that are happening in Sam's um, home country of Nigeria. And Sam eventually leads the team in a uh, protest that ends up being a really sweet scene. Um, where they um, tape out the the sponsor on their shirts and it ends yeah. up kind of bringing the team together. They end up losing the game, but it does finally break their um, long tie streak, streak of tie games. Yeah. So the team does still celebrate that. <laughs> so Which is great. Yeah. Yep. And that's really, that's the story this time. And we see some, some nice reconciliation too. From oh yeah. Really good team dynamic stuff this time. Your boy, Jamie. Yeah. Jamie, I want to like him. I just don't. No, I know. He's so arrogant. He really is. That is such a trigger for me too. Isn't it funny how things like that, I don't know if that's true for everybody, but man, arrogance make yeah. me crazy faster than almost anything else. Well, and even from, even in this, like, even though you see him, you see this humble side, you see this willing to reconcile and apologize and all that. He still shows up to practice one day with a, with a hat on it that in big white letters says icon. Mm -hmm. So it's like, yeah, you're still a douche. Yeah. yeah <laughs> it doesn't matter. He just can't, he can't help it. It's deep. The douche, the doucheness runs. Deep. Yeah, it does. So, yeah. All so right. where do we want to start here, friend? Well, I think, um, you know, we're talking about Jamie and I do think he's on a path to becoming a better man. Um, and, uh, you know, Ted says those very words. He gets asked, I think, by Trent Krem from The Independent. If you're 
don't remember where Trent's from. He says, I believe Jamie's on the path to become a better man. And I'm just here to help him on that journey. And ultimately, that what we learned from last time with that whole safe space thing that Sam said about his, you know, his dad says, you know, I'm in a safe space. That I think that really prompted Ted to be to give Jamie that chance because he realized not everybody has a great dad. Yeah. And I thought that was pretty cool for him to for him to recognize that even though he knows it's going to upset some stuff, I think it just goes back to like who again, authentic Ted, right? Like who he is at his core and what he's about and what he's about is helping. He said that way back in, in the first season, I'm about helping these men become the best versions of themselves that they can be. And winning is really a secondary thing in that list of stuff. And so, um, and so, yeah, he he does that. Although we do see Ted get a little uh, Jekyll and Heidi on us uh, here and becomes, as he refers to himself, that guy. Led Tasso. Led Tasso. And yeah. it's great because uh, I think Nate's in the office at the time they're talking about. It. He's like, he's like, who who's that guy? And he's like, Led Tasso. And and Beard like gets up and walks out. And, and Nate run, walks out behind me. Goes still don't know who that is. Like, like I, I, I don't really understand what's going on. Oh, so and then you funny. see, uh, you see good old, good old Led Tasso basically is, is Ted's alter ego. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, I think you were saying Beth, that you've had some conversations around this with team dynamics. So oh, um, for sure. Yeah. And we talked this about a little this bit a little bit. Us. Yeah. in the team dynamic episode, there is like a, there's a theory in, in team development of this, like, unifying force. Like if you can create a common enemy often that that will help bring a team together. Now, I think there's a really funny conversation that happens in this because Sharon sees this and knows exactly that that's what he's trying to do. Right. He makes the point of, does it ever work? (laughs) They're like, there's this, you know, this moment between Ted and beard where they're like, almost no, like (laughs) trying to decide, but no, not really. And Again, I would say the chances of it really working to pull a team together are pretty slim. Right. Um, but it is a real thing that's out there, and and that's part of why he does it. I do think there is a, a momentum that can come from it of, um, and or maybe the right word would be energy. There's an energy that can come from it yeah. of, yeah, we all are feeling the same way. So there's like an energy matching thing that can happen, but. Again, whether that's like sustainable and will actually lead a team to have great results is probably pretty, (laughs) pretty rare. Right. And I think the, um, I think what's interesting is they think, you know, Ted and Beard think they're being so clever Mm -hmm. and, you know, they come off and they're like, it's this little thing we, you know, cooked up back in, back in Iowa. And and she's like, oh, so you come up with a common enemy. So the team will hate you and not Jamie. He's like, wow, she got there really fast. (laughs) It just yeah. really, just really unpacks it. And I think this is a great, like, I think this is a great uh, place just to insert this, this quote that led Tasso has. Cause it's so funny. You know, he's just, <laughs> he's yelling at him and, you know, somebody's like, why are you yelling? He goes, well, that just, you know, that just made you 10 laps and he's getting all upset and he's just ranting and he goes, I hope y'all drank a lot of water today. Cause you're going to be so dehydrated. You're going to look like one of them trees from a Tim Burton, Tim Burton movie. Any Tim Burton movie, even Dumbo. And then he goes, even freaking Dumbo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. 
Uh, and he's just, he's like, he's in another world. And when, you know, when practice is finally over, he, he walks off the field and, and beard collapse in a space. And, and Ted's like, how long was I out? And he goes long enough. <laughs> and, uh, so then yeah. the lead tasso thing is over, but, um, yeah. So that, you know, that's kind of the first, so the, the focus gets off of Jamie, right? Jamie's, Jamie's obviously back. And then before they go out for the game, um, Jamie asks to say something to the team. He's like, coach, can I say something to the team? And he apologizes and he says, like, I know I was a jerk. And then what's really interesting is not, I don't think this is what Jamie was looking to have happen, but uh, kind of one by one that the team members just start saying like, here's what you did. <laughs> yeah. And you're just like, whoa, he is, a, he is a major douche. Like I can't, yeah. but then one guy's like, you hit on my mom. <laughs> With my dad standing right there, he's like, and it's just again, he's so arrogant. He goes, he goes, oh yeah, I'm really sorry about that. He's like, please apologize to your dad and say hello to Janet, yeah. <laughs> which is just, you which just he assumes resist. his mom. Yeah. Like, he's just, uh, he's just such a jerk, and it goes pretty. Like the beginning part's really good, and then the whole team just gets upset. And one guy who's the, I think he's the guy from like. Um, sweden or wherever he's from he's like he's like i don't even know you and i don't like you yeah <laughs> yeah because he's new to the team right uh yeah so funny and and it's also i think a really good illustration of you know we've talked about this we talked about this in the apology episode for sure you know words are fine like it's, yep. it's good that he said sorry i think it's good that he had that moment but until he's be, until his behavior actually changes nobody's gonna forgive him you know like that that's not how we base forgiveness. Even if you ask right. for it, there has to be some, you know, skin in the game. And, and I think that's a tough thing for Jamie. You know, I think sometimes we run into people who are like, well, I said, sorry, what else do you want me to do? Yeah. Um, prove it, yeah, <laughs> change, exactly. Exactly. Um, show it with your actions. And what's cool, the way that they set this up, you know, cause you have led Tasso, then you have, the apology and then you have this whole thing that comes up with dubai air where sam is like i can't be i can't be this person well they're the i mean they're the major sponsor for the team yeah they're on right? the shirts so. like right across the chest <laughs> exactly. right so a lot of money involved here a lot of relationship involved here there's a lot of ripple effects that go with all this and unbeknownst to ted really um, you know, it starts with Sam and the other two Nigerians that are on the team. They put a piece of tape across their chest to, to block it out. And Sam even says, which I thought was cool. He's like, look, I'm not expecting all of you to do this, but I hope you understand why we as Nigerians have to do this. Right. It's, it's a, yeah. it's very much a like pride in their home and standing up for all the things that are going on. And I love that Jamie is the first one to say, throw me the tape. And he, yes. and Sam, Sam looks at me, and goes, what are you doing? Um, totally unexpected, especially that it's going to be Jamie. And he says, and, and I like, I like that Jamie uses the sports thing as the excuse, but you know that it runs deeper than that. But he goes, yeah. we got to, we all got to wear the same kit, don't we? Like yeah. we're a team. So we have to do things all together, which I mean, 
we've seen Jamie up to this point be anything but a team player. Right. And so that's huge. Mm -hmm. That's a huge moment. And you can see Sam's kind of like, you know, do you, do you really mean this? And, Mm -hmm. and so that it's the beginning of, of, of putting actions to words, which Beth and I talk about a lot. You, you got to do, you can't, you know, you can't, you can't put a home gym in your, in your home and walk down and just look at the stuff for 30 minutes and expect to get into shape. You got to like pick you up the weights. Are and you do. sure? Have I, you tried it? I've tried. I, mean, I have tried. I've tried. Are you I wish sure? <laughs> I wish I could get a six pack by watching videos of other people getting six packs, but it just doesn't I feel like it should work that way. It would. I mean, if we could figure out how to make that work, we would be right. bajillionaires. Right. Um, Whole different business model. Yeah. yeah, no, I, I think it is such a great moment. And I love that Jamie's the first one to step up Yeah, and do that. And, and that's where you really do see the team start to come together and embrace Jamie um, in a different way. So I love that. Um, I love all these dynamics that happen in this episode too, with Rebecca and Nora. So there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot to like Nora watching Rebecca at work and, and, and there's just several moments where you know, Rebecca is kind of stepping up in a different way. I feel like because she's got Nora's eyes on her mm-hmm. um, really sweet, sweet moments that are happening. She has this great line where she's talking to Nora about what it means to be a leader. And she says, um, it's all about being three to f- three or four steps ahead. And I loved that. I don't know that mm-hmm. I've heard that a ton, yeah, but I, I miss that. that. So yeah. true. Like I, I think that is so true. But that is part of it. It's having enough vision to be ahead enough that you can um, can lead and serve others. Like if you're behind, <laughs> you yeah, yeah, you know, it's really difficult to do that. So I thought that was really well said too. I think there's a ton to unpack in that analogy, right? If you're behind, yeah. you're you're working to catch up, and it's not the place where you need to be because you're supposed yeah. to be leading. If you're too far ahead. It's, it's too up. detached. Yeah. Right. And people, yeah. so you need to be close enough that people you're still connected to the pack, if you will, but you are, you're three to four steps ahead. And one of the things that I really loved, because I think we forget, I know I've shared this before about when I got my first management job and my boss at the time was con- said, congratulations, you're now the topic of conversation around mm-hmm. 18 dinner tables around the, around the, country, how do you want those conversations to sound? And there's this, you know, there's this whole thing with Rebecca and Nora that she hasn't seen her for six years. She kind of disappeared out of her life. And so Nora or Rebecca is taking her to all these things that they would have done when she was six years younger. And now she's 13 or 14. So of course she doesn't want to go to a doll shop or a mm-hmm. tea party or some of these other things. And Roy's they run into Roy at the doll shop and, and Rebecca and Roy are talking about this. And Roy says, He's like, you just need to invite him to be like part of your day. And he goes, Oi, Phoebe, you want to come with me to that later today to my podiatrist appointment? And she's like, Yes. yes. He's like, <laughs> he's like, see. <laughs> and there's a really sweet moment later when they are when Rebecca and Nora are at home. And uh, she says, Hey, would you like to come and just hang out with me at work and go to meetings? And maybe it's going to be boring, but um, and Nora's all, she's like, Oh my gosh, yes, I would love to do that. She's like, I've always wanted to, I've always wanted to know what it's like to run a football team. And, and Rebecca looks at her and she's like, really since when? And she goes, since you started doing it. 
And I just think that's so sweet. And it's, you just, I'm telling you, and I had this conversation a couple of weeks ago with, uh, with somebody, uh, one of my, one of my peers, you just, or maybe we talked about it in our peer group. You just never know who is watching. That was in our peer group, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. We had that conversation. Like the, the people who will show up and, and book you or ask you things have been, have been paying attention for a long time and they may, ne- may never have said anything. Like clearly Nora didn't reach out to Rebecca and say, I think you're awesome. And that starts the whole thing of the boss ass bitch, right? Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. Rebecca makes a stand with the, with the, the um, team. With the team and with the, the sponsor mm-hmm. to, do, to do the right thing. So in that whole idea of doing the right thing, there's two great quotes that are there, one from Nora and one from Ted that are, and I think they're both, they're, they're this, maybe the same sides, same sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. Can you have that? I think so. Uh, sometimes, you have, sometimes you have to do the right thing, even if you lose. Nora says that to Rebecca. Mm-hmm. When Ted says to Sam, doing the right thing is never the wrong thing. And yeah. man, I think I've just seen a bunch of people it's like, I'm going to lose and I won't lose if I do this other thing, but that's not the right thing. Um, or I got to bend the truth or I got to, you know, whatever it happens to be. And it just, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. You got to do, I mean, back in the day, Spike Lee had a film, right? Do the right right. thing. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It's been, it's been around for a long time. And the, the only other piece that I want to um, really throw out is just the genius of this show and how fast it moves. So <laughs> they're, they're doing a Diamond Dogs thing, and they're talking about this banter app that Keely's trying to get everybody on. And Beard shares with everybody. He's like, Jane and I have reached a new point in our relationship. And they're like, oh, yeah, really? What's going on? He's like, we're sharing an iCloud account. And he says they call it digital intimacy. And so they're like, oh, so you didn't, you didn't download the app because if Jane saw it in your shared account, I think Higgins is saying that and Beard quotes Pulp Fiction. So she would destroy my phone with a pair of pliers and a blowtorch. And I miss, (laughs) I did not hear that the first three or four times that I watched this episode and I heard it last night. I was like, where do I know that quote? I was like, oh my gosh, it's from Pulp <laughs> Fiction. And again, it moves so fast moves that fast. if you weren't paying attention, it would just run right by you. But yet again, congratulations, Ted Lasso, for pulling yet another a very common, yeah, very common pulp or uh, popular culture, pop culture uh thing into the into the into the show. So good. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, with that, I think let's get to our guest. Yeah. Sounds good. Can't wait for you all to meet them. If you feel like you've lost your fire, especially during the great resignation in the wake of a global pandemic, you're not alone. People are rethinking life choices and life paths like never before. Lucky for you, it's not a road you have to walk alone. Igniting the Firestarter Within chronicles Jason Barnaby's and several other leaders' journeys, from corporate professional to solopreneur. This book will help you find your fire, fan the flame, and tend your tribe as you work to uncover the real you. Want to accelerate your results? Check out 30 Days to Blaze, a 30-day practical step-by-step guide to finding and feeding the fire inside of all of us. You can get both on Amazon.com.
All right. So it is my distinct pleasure to welcome uh, my good friend and uh, eight on the Enneagram man, Chip Knighty. Chip, welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you today. Thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure to be here, Jason and Beth. Thanks for having me. Of course. We love it. So we are going to jump right in and uh, we're going to give you a chance at the end just to let people know uh, where to find you. But before we do that, can you just tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, those kinds of things to set us up before we start digging into your wealth of wisdom on episode three? Sure. Um, been a husband for, for 20, I'm, I'm trying to stop, say fur, like an Indiana boy and say, uh, four. you it's failed there. Hard. I know. Uh, I have been a husband for 27 years. I have three children. My daughter is graduating from Purdue this Friday, age 22. I have a son who just became a sophomore at Purdue age 19. And I have a son who is soon to become a sophomore at North central high school. Uh, I run a company called Kairos. And we are a leadership development agency. agency. And we work with, yes, an agency. And we work with CEOs and executive teams. And we help them build new awareness and capabilities as they face inflection points so they can enter new chapters of growth. So currently, we have a team of five of us. And we all are uh, coaches and consultants who work with executives, helping them mature and grow in the ways that are most important for them. All right. So... Chip, we are going to jump into some of the things that we talked about in uh, episode three, which is is dubbed "Do the Rightest Thing." Um, you, we've talked over the years. I I know a little bit about your process and the fact that you work with CEOs and and C suite folks. And I'm curious um, when you are digging in with teams. You know, as because we're all consultants, so as we come in, we have the um, the benefit of outside perspective, right? I'm curious if when you come in, uh, how often that do the rightest thing is very apparent to you, and is it if you see it and they don't, is it hard to? And I don't know if you try to persuade them or convince them. Maybe those are the wrong words, and you can set me straight. But is it, do you find pushback when you say, this is what you need to do? And they go, no, this is what we need to do. And you're like, no, but I'm here to tell you that this is like doing the rightest thing. And this is going to get you there, even though it's hard. Do you, do you find pushback with that? I think there's an assumption in your question that I tell people a lot, hey, this is the right thing to do. Oh, maybe that. Yeah. Which is, I think, not a completely accurate assumption. Um. I find most people are doing the best they can with what they know. Mm. And there are certainly times where people make intentionally um, selfish decisions, but at some level that decision makes sense for them. Otherwise they wouldn't make that decision. So if you think about our current level of maturity, you know, Richard Rohr says all evil in the world comes from lack of consciousness. And I'm, mm. I'm coming to uh, to believe that that's true, and I I, I share that insight or that that uh, perspective from Richard Rohr with some people, and they're like, "No, I don't believe that's true at all." Uh, the best and most important thing we can do for most people is if we have a different perspective, hopefully an elevated perspective, 
we can invite them to consider that perspective and hopefully that unlocks something for them. So it's a new frame of reference, uh, a new perspective that gives them new choice. Um, and a lot of people make decisions only considering very few choices because their, their vision is so narrow. And one of the things I think we can do as consultants is help people expand their vision and realize they have other options. And I may make a recommendation based on what I know, but as you, as you both know, as consultants, you know, the, the value we have as external parties, as you said, is the objectivity. And we've seen a lot of stuff, a lot of different places. The, the, uh, the advantage that the client has is they know their situation and their specifics in a way that we can't because we don't live it. And so if you marry those two things up and you give somebody free will to make their own choices, I think the best we do is we give them opportunities to consider things from a different frame of reference. I like that. Yeah, I like that a lot. Do you, do you work with a lot of clients who are kind of struggling with those ethical type of dilemmas of, okay, maybe two things are correct. What, you know, how do I make the call of, of what's going to um, serve the organization or the people better? Yeah, I think the hardest choices that we ever have to make are when values are intention. So we, we might value um, relational connection here. And we also value performance excellence over here. And how do you marry those together for an and also, as opposed to feeling like I'm pulled one way or the other and I have to make a choice. So um, sometimes we can, we can help people navigate through values conflicts by figuring out how do we honor both values or how do we get the most of honoring both values, recognizing that there's no perfect solution. This side of heaven, I think all of our choices are suboptimal, right? We're always choosing the best of a bunch of suboptimal options. The more, again, we can help people have more options, then hopefully they have better ability to choose something that's you know, the best. So even the notion of the rightest thing is sort of absolutist. Right, right. The way you might think of that would be choose the rightest thing that you know of, given given yeah. your moral framework. And even that, it's, it might come in conflict or be different than somebody else's moral framework. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a good point. Even the, the idea that something can be right or wrong, that's a you know construct that a right. lot of us live in that we know isn't even valid a lot of the times. Well, I, right? I think, uh, so if you look at the, you know, the, uh, the Bible story of Adam and Eve and the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you know, and in the story, God tells Adam and Eve, the first two humans, you can eat from any of these trees, but not this one. And I think what that is saying, uh, regardless of whether you think it's a literal story or a metaphorical story, what that story is saying is, how can we as humans truly know what is good and evil? And it's not to say that we shouldn't strive towards it, but I think it's a caution to have humility in thinking that we understand absolute good and absolute evil because we don't have perfect knowledge. Like we can't see into others' hearts. I would even contend we can't fully see into our own hearts. I would agree with that. A lot of my journey has been continually waking up to new truths about myself that uh, are often ugly, that I don't like a whole lot. And that uh, hopefully keeps me honest and gives me more humility in thinking I know what is right or wrong in a given situation. But that doesn't absolve me of the responsibility of trying to, to strive towards better understanding, higher levels of consciousness, so I can choose the higher good. So one of the things that I've learned in my 
personal journey in especially over the last 18 months in being in in therapy and and putting the mirror up in front and doing some of the hard work is that I and I didn't realize this before and I think you're alluding to some of that and curious what you think about this um I had for sure and still am tied to it in some situations a very dualistic way of thinking right that it's it's left or right up or down right or wrong black or white you know whatever that happens to be and I heard you use the word and which is one of my favorite words um and or do you in your work that you've done and in your experience maybe even going back to military oh that's perfect oh, for dogs diamond are dogs. perfect for diamond we love dogs. it we, we, we love have it no problem with that yeah. at all here we love that does not mean that we're adjourned for those of you that's listening. right we're not so adjourned we're, yet but we're yes. still going but would you say that most leaders struggle with that tension that that it is very much that way of it has to be this or that or it has to be up or down they don't they're they're typically seeing only two things in front of them and they don't see what I would consider a myriad of other options that are available to them? I think humans universally, when we get more stressed and when we get in those amygdala hijacking rat brain moments, I think our, our vision becomes tunneled and we see fewer options and it becomes even more likely that we start getting into this dualistic thinking. Sure. And it's very hard for us as humans to uh, hold two opposing ideas simultaneously in our mind and think these both can't, might be true. Mm-hmm. Like uh, the, the uncertainty often feels unsafe or uncomfortable. And so I think there's like brain chemistry and you know neurobiology stuff that makes us want to fall down on one side or the other of the fence. And it's probably worse for some people than others. Uh, I find for me personally, I don't like being up on the fence because it kind of feels weak. Like taking a stand feels strong for me and I yeah. like feeling strong, right? So um, yeah, it's a journey. I think non-dualistic thinking is a, or ever increasing levels of non-dualistic thinking yeah. is a good sign of maturity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just hard. Like it's just like... I have to fight against the tendency to want to, to quickly discern. You know, there's probably something around, you know, you hear a rustle in a bush as a caveman and you need to know, is that a saber tooth tiger or is it food, right? Is it something I can kill and eat or something that's going to kill and eat me? So I, I think there's probably good reasons why we have that. But um, in most of our circumstances, we're not at saber tooth tiger level of danger and we need to like turn off some of that or, or, um, uh, overcome it or recognize it's there and it's trying to help, but it's not in a kind of saying, Hey, thanks. Thanks for trying to help there, but I don't have any saber tooth tigers around here. I think I can calm it down and, and expand my field of vision. So I don't have that dualistic thinking. Yeah. And I think there's a lot, I like the tide of stress there. Cause I do think that absolutely plays a factor, right? The more stress we're feeling, the more uncertainty we're feeling, the, the more that pushes us to want there to be a right answer, because that's going to be comforting to us. That's going to help us feel better. And those are probably the moments we need to, to the most look for more information and pull up and be less judgmental. But, you know, it, it makes me think of just what the last couple of years of politics have been. It makes a ton of sense that what's happening 
is is what's happening because everybody's stress level is through the roof, right? Like, yeah. right. Um, well, par- paradoxically, the time we most need to pull up and consider other options is the time when we're least likely to do it. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. You know, it's like yeah. it's like telling somebody who's depressed. It's like, well, you need to reach out to somebody else. Yeah, like, you need like, to be more happy. Well, and it's true when you're depressed, you do need to reach out to other people, but that's the yes. time you least feel like reaching out to other people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Life is hard. Like some, sometimes it's hard to do the rightest thing. Sometimes it is. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good point. I want to get your, your two cents. The, the other thing we really wanted your opinion on from this episode, there's this great scene with Rebecca where she um, is telling her goddaughter, you know, that part of being a leader is being three or four steps ahead. You know, like you have to be far enough ahead that you can't anticipate things. If if you were going to give leaders some tips on how do we do that, like how how do we actually practically apply that or think about it? What are your thoughts on that? My hunch, in terms of an answer, is that we need to find more silence, more stillness more solitude. Wow. That's good. And that we, um, we get so busy that we become reactive, not even responsive, but reactive, much less able to envision what the future looks like or could look like. And I don't think we need to be prepared for every eventuality, but I think there's a lot of, uh, shaping of the future or trying to influence what the future will look like or, you know, shape conditions so that a future vision is likely to emerge that requires us to, to envision. I don't think, I don't think most leaders are very good at envisioning. It's like um, thinking of what might be is hard and then communicating what might be is also hard, but those are such essential skills for pulling any group or team forward into something better. Um, I think teams function best, not when they just have clear instructions, but when they have a clear vision of this is the better world we're trying to create together. And that's a type of thinking three or four steps ahead. You know, there's a defensive way that it, like the way Rebecca said it in the, in the show, it felt a little like a, like playing defense. Like you need to, you need to envision every threat that could come your way. She didn't say that explicitly, but that's sort of what it felt like when she said it. Um, but I think there's a, a more like playing offense way to think of it, which is where do we want to be three or four steps from now? And then how do we get there? So you don't need everybody on the team thinking three to four steps ahead. But if you're the senior most person on the team and you don't have a vision that pulls people forward a few steps, I think it can start to feel very incoherent on the team. And I've actually felt that on my team recently, Wes on my team, couple months ago, maybe it was a month ago, he said, I'm starting to feel a little scattered. Like we had a vision at the beginning of the year and it feels like we're drifting a little bit. And so can you tighten that up for me? So I'm grateful that he said that. I'm not sure I've done it uh, particularly well, but it's just a statement of even people who are highly motivated to move the ball down the field. If I can use a sports analogy. Of course. uh, I mean, it's pretty fitting. (laughs) You know, people who are highly motivated to move the ball down the field you can feel they can they can look around and be like wait are we all moving the same ball down the same field and so that's where i think vision comes in so um so importantly in that equation so i have a i have a follow up question to what you said um you said when we were talking about leaders envisioning you said you think that most leaders have a have a 
struggle with the envisioning piece. And so for those who are listening, I think this is a great place to pause um, if you are in leadership and say, do I have a problem with that? Why would you say that most that that most leaders struggle with that piece in your experience? What's the reasons behind that? And what might somebody do to try to understand where they are in that and and make progress? You always ask multi-part questions. And each, I do. Individual, each individual question is hard and then you layer them on top. Right. Of I'm trying my best. Yeah. I'm trying my best. Well, let me just wrap a little bit and you can shape the, shape the flow of the water as we go along. Perfect. I'm not sure why it's hard for everybody, but I do know that with the CEOs we've worked with where we say, I think there's a lack of clarity vision and they go off on their own and try to clarify, it's hard. And even when we help them to clarify, it can be hard. Uh, I think it one thing that can be beneficial to move it along is to be interviewed by somebody about what you want the future to look like. So have people draw it out of you, like somebody who's a good question asker. Mm. Um, I, um, my friend Santi Jaramillo has, he had a framework for vision, which was for a, uh, for an organization, you need to think about market and you need to think about solution and market is who are the people we're going to serve and what is the problem we're solving for them? And then solution is how are we going to solve that problem for them? And I uh, layered on top of that model, maybe adding unnecessary complexity. I said, I think there's a third component of vision. We'll call it culture, which is who do we want to be? 100%. We're delivering that solution that's serving that market. And that framework has been very powerful for our team to just articulate what are we trying to do in the world right now? How are we trying to, to meet that need? And how do we need to change as a team in order, in order to be that? So that framework can be helpful. Uh, it simplifies and structures it, but not too much. Uh, so I'll, I'll pause there and let you let you shape the flow of water. No, I think that's a, a fantastic way to. I I wanted to listen and didn't want to get distracted by taking notes for that. I'm definitely going to go back and listen to that. I think that's a great exercise for. I mean, whether you're, I would say, whether you're at the C-suite, um, I think about the the internal sales team that I used to lead, that would have been a great... We got pulled in 8,000 different directions because that's what had always happened. And there had never been a vision put forth of this is what we are doing. This is who we are serving. This is how we're doing it. And this is who we want to be to those people. So as a response, we became all things to all people, which can be a good band-aid right? for sometimes because people need support or whatever. But what we found over time was that we we were so general that we really weren't a lot of value. And we we picked, you know, the four or five arrows in the quiver. These are the only arrows that we're going to shoot. And if we need to shoot other ones, we're going to go get somebody else who's better at shooting that arrow than we are because with that we don't we don't have the time, the energy, the resources to learn how to shoot that particular arrow or use that weapon or whatever it has to be using, you know, military metaphors. I'm comfortable with weapons. I, I, I know you are. Uh, I'll add. So I like, I like where you took that. And I would say, I think the best visions are polarizing, which is you can look at that vision and say, that's not for me. 
Like, I don't, I don't want to go there and I don't want to, I don't want to solve that problem with that solution. I don't want to be that kind of uh, team member to do that. Or, oh yes, that's absolutely the problem I want to solve. I'm really excited about solving it that way. And I want to become that kind of person to solve that problem for those people. So if it's not polarizing, you got to ask yourself like how, you know, if it doesn't have any sharp edges, Mm -hmm. it may not be crisp enough to actually pull people forward. So a vision that is attractive to everyone, it's just pablum, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's soft. Yeah. I love that. And that, you know, solves a recruiting problem too, right? Absolutely. <laughs> you know, you, cause you'll either get people who are really yeah. passionate for what you're doing or people who won't even apply. Cause it's not, well, it also, it also solves a market targeting problem. Mm-hmm. If I know whom I am serving, it can be easy for me to quickly say, Hey, I understand your problem set and I like you, but that's not the work we do. Yeah. That's part of his friends, right? Like that's so, so critical as opposed to, you know, 16 years ago when I started Kairos, like if somebody's money was green and they said, can you help with this? I'd say, absolutely. And that's probably what I needed for the business to survive those first couple of years. But now we have the luxury of having a lot of conversations where we say, I don't think this is a fit, but I have a couple of people you might want to talk to who probably is a fit to work with them. Mm. That's That's relatable. That feels relatable. Well, yeah. and, you know, I'm, I'm finding I'm, I'm in a season of training my team to do that now, too. So I've stubbed my toe so many times with bad clients. Yes. Or bad yes. And I don't even want to say bad, but like just not a not, threshold yeah. where you, you do work and you're like, uh, you know, it was it was it was pretty good. And they paid us and they didn't resent paying us and they got some value out of it. But it wasn't like a brand building experience that they're right. thrilled about. And I thought, well, let's not let's not do more of those. Let's do the ones where we're thrilled to do the work. They're thrilled to get the solution, and yeah. we can all get be really proud of it. And yeah. so, my team, there's a little bit of a scarcity mentality of, well, my job is to make the sale, and I'm like, no, no, your job is to do what's right for the client. And if we're not a great fit, and we know it's not going to be a great engagement, let's just let somebody else work with them. You might say their job is to do the rightest thing in that situation. Oh, that's. that's <laughs> You might, I mean, bringing it full circle. One might say that. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Chip, I feel like we could talk to you all day and and would love to have you back at some point. But would you share with our audience how they can uh, find you? I'm sure that um, everybody is like, I need Chip in my life. How how do we do Chip? And I can tell you as a a personal friend of Chip's, you do need Chip in your life. (laughs) He is, he's a great addition to the tribe for sure. You are, you are kind to say so both of you. Uh, I, I think the easiest way is kairosconsulting.com, K-A-I-R-O-S consulting.com. I'm on LinkedIn. Those are the easiest ways to find. Okay. Well, we'll be sure to include links to that in the show notes so that you can reach out and find Chip. And um, thanks again, Chip, for coming and hanging out with us for a while. We enjoyed having you. Great questions. Appreciate it. Of course. Thank you. Our diamond dog of the week is our guest, Chip Nighty's dog, Toofy. Thanks for joining us for the Diamond Dogs podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the show. You can find us on Instagram at the Diamond Dogs podcast or wherever you like to listen.